Rabbi Stephen Brzezinski, who is based in Israel, is Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation B'nai Yishurin here in Teaneck, New Jersey. He's Israel Region Vice President of the Coalition for Jewish Values and Senior Research Associate at the Jerusalem Center for Applied Policy. He is also somebody who this week addressed the topic that I think is on a lot of our minds. Uh, what type of Hanukkah celebrations should we or should we not be having in 5 7 Eight four Rabbi Przanski Chag Urim Sameach and welcome back to JM in the AM. Nochem, thank you, and Hanukkah Sameach to all your listeners as well. Appreciate that very much. So you brought up a topic uh, earlier this week that um, I really do think is on the minds of a lot of people around the world. I was impressed, frankly, and I'm sure you'll be glad to hear this. I was impressed that recently I was at a VART, the L'chaim, one of these engagement parties, beautiful celebration, and I walked in, and uh, it was noted to me that there was no live music because the Hassan and Kala decided that for an engagement party, everyone could just gather and wish Mazel Tov during times like this with our brothers and sisters in Israel in mind. We're not going to have live music, you know, wild dance dancing, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was really appropriate. Uh, now that Hanukkah has begun, and I don't know how it works in Israel, because in Israel, except for Shabbos, it's always a work day, <laughs> or, or, or maybe the opposite. <laughs> but I don't know how it works in Israel. But you know, Rami Przansky, that tomorrow night and Sunday in this country, there are going to be a lot of Hanukkah gatherings. What should our attitude, what should our atmosphere be this year as we celebrate Hanukkah five? Five, seven, eight, four. It should be joy. Let me preface by saying that uh, I didn't make up the question. I actually write a column biweekly in the Jewish press called Is It Proper? I'm one of the rabbis on the panel who respond. And that was this week's question that I responded to, as did uh, Rabbi Zev Lef of Moshav Matidya, which is uh, neighboring us about six, seven miles away. Hanukkah always has to be celebrated with joy. I mean, the Rambam defines it as Yimei Simcha V'Halel. So not only do we praise Hashem, but, praise Hashem, but we should feel a sense of happiness, a sense of joy. And I think especially this year, notwithstanding all the uh, suffering around us and the sadness, and it is intense, but notwithstanding that, Hanukkah has the capacity to tap in to the deepest wellsprings of spirituality and our connection to Hashem, and especially Hanukkah. I mean, keep in mind that what are we celebrating when the miracle of the menorah happened in the Beit HaMikdash, the war was still going on, and Jewish soldiers were dying, and yet the miracle took place. And in fact, the sages did not know how to respond to it. That's the Gemara emphasizes that a year later, they realized what had happened, and they decided to ordain Hanukkah as days of festivity, of rejoicing, of thanksgiving, of hal v'hodah. And that's what happened. So it took a year for Chazal to internalize what just happened to us why did it happen, and what are the lessons that we can draw 
from Hanukkah. But no doubt, with that in mind, and I'm in no way disagreeing with you, you're right, uh, the Hanukkah celebrations should go on. But without doubt, you have to be impressed with a bride and groom in the example that I gave, that when there's a private celebration, they're going to temper things. When it's not a calendaric Yom Tov for the entire Jewish nation, they're going to temper things and, and use the opportunity to highlight what our brothers and sisters in Israel are going through. Unquestionably so. It speaks well of them because, of course, we have to be mishtatev b'tzara. We have to participate, even feel the suffering that others are undergoing. So you're talking about an optional discretionary event where music is not essential. We wouldn't say, for example, they shouldn't get engaged. And I can tell you there are many, many people in Israel who just can't go away. They they can't go on vacation. It just doesn't seem right. In, in wartime, right. you can't uh, abandon people who are fighting, and there's something we can all do. But the point I wanted to make was that when Hazal established Hanukkah a year after the miracle in the Beit HaMikdash, right. the war was still going on. Mm-hmm. That war went on for 20 years after the miracle of the uh, Shemen, of the oil. So during the war, they established these days as days of Simcha and Hallel. And note, of course, the symbolism that we're talking about. It's because they felt this intense connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu because of the miracle of the oil. And think what's happening in our day at this particular time and the connection that people are feeling closer to God. The surge in spirituality, the increase in connectedness that most Jews are having in the land of Israel. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about it and heard about it. Sure. The tzitzit campaign. Yep. <laughs> Soldiers are wearing tzitzit. I mean, it's become not an uncommon sight. I just saw it yesterday. Someone walking around tzitzit and no kippah. All right? <laughs> That's great. Now, I, I understand the difference between right. a minog right. and, uh, and a mitzvah. A mitzvah. <laughs> right. But it's still, in, it's still incongruous to see. <laughs> but nonetheless, what people are doing in order to feel a closer connection to Hashem, to their Jewishness, yeah. so that's welcome. And I think Hanukkah is a prime catalyst in order to in, in order to allow us to uh, to to increase those points of connection. Now, a little bit on the uh, political and military side. All right, Stephen Przanski is with us from Israel. You just, you, you, we just stumbled based on what you just said. I, I, you just stumbled on something that I hadn't been focused on. Um, it, the, those of us who grew up in a certain era uh, are, are generally focused on how short Israel's wars generally are. Uh, even the even the wars of the of the summers and uh, uh, you know in Gaza and the and the and the summer up north, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, those wars tend to be I don't know 30, 40 days. And obviously, as a kid, I'll never forget that as the Yom Kippur War was in, was at its height, we kept referring to you know. How many days is it because we're assuming it's going to be a duplicate of the six-day war, et cetera, et cetera. You just mentioned 20 years in reference to the Maccabim. I, um, I, in one way, we know that the longer this war goes on, the more of an opportunity it is for Israel to eradicate the enemy and to set, up, set the entire Jewish world up for safety and security for the next God knows how many years. On the other side... 
you know, the, the, the suffering and pain for our brothers and sisters is immense. Uh, families who are losing uh, uh, children, uh, soldiers who are falling in battle, um, uh, the people whose lives continue to be in a state of upheaval. I don't know when they're going to be returning to their towns from the hotels that they now, you know, are, 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 are essentially refugees. Um, and obviously just this, the, the whole, you know, the work schedule and, and life schedule, school, life, everything is in, is in turmoil uh, to different degrees depending on where people are in Israel. Uh, what, what is your perspective as one knows that the longer this goes on, the greater the victory could be, and at the same time, the longer it goes on, the greater pain the Israeli and Jewish people could be suffering? Israel's wars have always been short because bear in mind the majority of the military consists of reservists and reservists cannot spend a lot of time away from their jobs. It's not just a question of income, although that comes into it, but the government is now uh, subsidizing uh, their jobs. But it's the fact that the economy halts, grinds to a halt. It stops producing. And when that happens, it's a spiraling effect, a snowball effect, and that could have uh, very harmful consequences to the prosperity in which Israel is generally accustomed. So that's why wars are short. I think this war is different because the atrocities that occurred on Shrin Yatzeret were of such a nature that first it shocked the Israeli system, the Israeli public, from one end of it of the spectrum to the other. And secondly, because you have that substantial population about 180,000 people from the south, the areas around Gaza and the north bordering Lebanon that simply will not return to their homes unless there is some guarantee as such that there could be that the threat has been removed. Because Hezbollah keeps threatening to do in the north what Hamas did in the south. Now, of course, urban warfare is always going to take longer. I mean, how long were the Americans in Fallujah? in Mosul, and how long did they fight there? It took uh, over a year with the very, very heavy casualties. The thing is, you're correct, every morning we wake up, I think it's like uh, 6 a.m. or so, where the the, uh, military spokesman announces the carbonate from the day before, and that's the news that you wake up to, which family is in mourning, which uh, wife has lost her husband, which child has lost his or her father. And it is very painful. But, you know, I've been able to witness and hear a number of the eulogies, the tremendous strength of character that uh, the families have, that they know this is not an optional war. These are existential threats. These are not wars of conquest. These are wars to defend the Jewish people and our homeland that Hashem gave us. See, really see this notion in graphic detail in real time that the land of Israel was given to us. It's acquired through Yisurin, through suffering. And you see the pain, you see the sadness, but you also see the tenacity and the faith. And with that, the strength of character and the will the resolve that the Jewish people have in the land of Israel. And I think that's what people are taking away from it. And as long as they see progress, and we don't have the American administration uh, compelling Israel or cajoling Israel into stopping the fighting, leaving Hamas 
in existence. I mean, they just shot rockets 10 minutes ago, all right? So they're not defeated. And I think Americans lose sight of the fact that the war is ongoing, and it's not just a ground invasion of Gaza. It's that the rockets are still coming, all right? We, we had to sit in our uh, sealed room early this week. And we're, we're relatively far from Gaza. But the areas around Gaza and Beersheba, Beersheba had a barrage yesterday. So however it is, whatever it is, Hamas still, they may have, uh, they claim to have no food, no water, no oil or anything else, but they're still managing to fire rockets every day. So the war is not over, but the spirit of the Jewish people to continue the battle and see it to its end, that is there and that will remain. And I think at this point, at least, the government has the willpower to say to the Americans, no. And I think, by the way, that's why the government is relenting more on the provision of humanitarian aid to the so-called civilians of Gaza, because it buys us time to continue the military operation. Yesterday, about 150 Hamas terrorists surrendered. All right. They came out of the tunnels and surrendered. And that's actually a good sign because the images that were disseminated of the Arabs surrendering are displayed throughout Gaza and throughout the Middle East, the Arab Middle East. And they see that Israel's not going to be defeated and not going to walk away with a stalemate. And that itself can propel this war to a more rapid conclusion. Those in Lebanon could be saying to Hezbollah, we, we don't want to be, you know, featured in, in photos like that around the world. You know, don't get don't get involved. That is, that is correct. And Netanyahu keeps threatening, and admirably so, to turn Beirut into Gaza if there is an invasion of uh, Hezbollah. And look, just like Hamas in Gaza, well, they were the, they ran the government. Hezbollah is a very powerful force in the Lebanese government. Right. So it's not as if they are these uh, independent uh, lone wolf terrorist operations. No, in both places, in Gaza and Lebanon, they are incorporated in the structure of governance. Hezbollah, part of the Lebanese government, sits in parliament. And Hamas, the, uh, the, the dictator, the despot, but the tyrant that rules Gaza. J.M. and the A.M. on a Friday morning era of Shabbos. A reminder, everybody, that our uh, campaign continues, our year-end campaign. Support J.M. and the A.M., Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting. Every, As we announced early this morning, every donation is now being matched during the holiday of Hanukkah through a very, very distinguished panel of uh, matchers, which is on the website. Everything you give now is doubled. Everything you give now is doubled. Please help us at fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. Malcolm Honline is traveling this week. He'll join us, please God, next week for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. Rabbi Stephen Przanski is with us from Israel. You, you always wonder about, you know, high-profile episodes, especially, you know, during uh, tense times like this. And, right, Przanski, um, uh, the, the fact that Gal Mayer Eisenkot is now a uh, victim, is now among the casualties, uh, IDF casualties of the war, the son of the former IDF chief of staff, member of the war cabinet, uh, a minister in the government. Um, do you think that changes anything or the attitude toward America or toward the war changes or Israel has displayed that this, at this point they're all in anyway and even with a high profile episode like this, not much will change? 
I think it's been duly noted in many circles that while Hamas's leaders and their children are hiding in the Gulf and Qatar in luxury hotels and apartment buildings, the children of Israel's leaders are on the front lines. And in fact, that uh, Gal Eisenkatz, uh, Gabi Eisenkatz's son, Gal Eisenkatz, Shemekom Damo, the fact that he was killed in action reinforces to the Israeli population that this is not a battle fought by, you know, the average citizens, the lower classes of society that cannot do anything else. This is a battle which is being fought by everybody, everyone. And, you know, people have to keep in mind, Israel is a relatively small country in territory as well as in population. There's no one in Israel today who doesn't have a, a first, certainly second degree relationship to someone who was killed on October 7th. Yeah, someone who's on, honestly, 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 it feels like all of us, even those in the diaspora, have, have that type of... That's uh, correct. Closest. Absolutely I mean, so. That's the element of mishpacha, family, that yeah. exists in the Jewish people. So it's just that in this particular case, you know the father. I've known other fathers, but everybody knows someone. And as a result, it's considered a national effort. And, you know, this is actually it's such a difference between Israel and America. I lived through the Vietnam War. I don't think, I don't want to give away my age, I don't <laughs> think I knew anybody who was in the service. Subsequently, I met people who were Vietnam veterans. Right. But while it was going on, I knew no one. It was a high casualty rate. 55,000 Americans were killed. I knew no family who lost someone. It is we're very insulated in America to, from America's wars. It's not so in Israel. We're all, we're all part of it. And now because we know so many people, but we're part of it because you're mindful of the explosions happening overhead. When the Iron Dome, sometimes the Iron Dome will go off here without a siren because it's uh, about 10, 15 miles from. We're not subject to it, but you do hear the explosions. And you hear the aircraft flying overhead on the way to Gaza. So it's very close and it's very real. And therefore, the spirit of the Jewish people in Israel is a very powerful one and a very uh, evocative one. We can't escape it. We don't want to escape it. We want to be able to seize our destiny and vanquish our enemies. All right. Three quick things from this side of the world. First, I'll, I'll do the easy ones first. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've heard, you follow the news, that the United Nations today will have a resolution about a ceasefire. I know the tendency, especially among certain Jewish leaders, is to just throw their hands up and sort of, you know, denounce the UN for even existing. And I get that attitude. Uh, but what's your reaction when, when you hear that this gathering um, is going to take place? And, and no doubt Israel is going to be the target of many of its political enemies today at the UN. I think this is another example of the UN's bias because uh, the Secretary General has raised this issue before the Security Council pursuant to a very rarely invoked clause in the uh, UN uh, regulations that he himself brings something because he considers it a threat to global peace. Interesting, on October 8th, he didn't bring any such uh, uh, motion before the uh, UN Security Council. Yeah, it's simply an attempt to keep Israel's enemies alive. 
to prevent us from doing what is necessary. So there are countries of goodwill that are part of the United Nations. Not, not many, but there are some. <laughs> there are a couple I'm of assuming those. now that at this particular point, the United States will veto that resolution so it will not go into uh, it will not go into effect or call for it. But if the UN calls for it, Israel has every right, and I anticipate will ignore it because we are at war and we cannot let our enemies consider this. One of the spokesmen from Hamas, actually hiding in Gaza, has said a number of times in the last two weeks that there will be many, many more October seventh to come. And as soon as they have the capacity to uh, rebuild, they will continue to attack Jews. Their goal is simple, the destruction of Israel and the eradication of every Jew on whom they can get their hands. So what exactly is the ceasefire that from any moral perspective should bind us to tolerate that state of affairs? So yeah, it's completely uh, immoral, it's wrong, and I hope nothing will come of it. Um. Someone asked me, uh, there, there are many people disappointed in the, in the slight shift. I got to be fair to him. You know, right? we got to be fair to President Biden. Um, but there are some people uh, somewhat frustrated by the slight shift now that they're feeling from Washington uh, regarding the position that he's taking, um, how he's speaking about, um, you know, casualties among the civilians in Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I only half jokingly say to people, God can do anything except change the date of election day. <laughs> and as long as there's an election coming up and he has to, uh, you know, find favor with certain groups in the Democratic Party that, that he uh, imagines, or maybe it's a fact that are, you know, are powerful in his party, he's going to have to go in a certain direction. Um, do, do, I mean, look, you, you watch the political scene, you know, with, with great interest. Uh, do you think that if election day was not looming, it, we might have a different attitude coming out of Washington? I think the elections play a significant role because he doesn't want to lose his base. I can tell you, from my perspective, I can't see him being the Democratic nominee. Something will occur in the next uh, half year to change that. It doesn't really compute that he's going to run again for office. But let's be candid about Biden. He's been very good on the actions that he's done. I mean, as of yesterday, I heard over 400 planes have come from America with military supplies, needed equipment. All right. So that's important. That's vital to the war effort. And for that, we're most appreciative. But really, from the fourth or fifth day of the war, his statements have belied the support of his actions. And now you hear the mantra coming out of the White House from Joe Biden, from Kamala Harris, from John Kirby with their five no's. No occupation. Israel cannot remain in Gaza. No Gazan can be displaced, etc. And that is not only foolish and counterproductive, but it actually, from my perspective, makes the sacrifices of Jewish life in vain, God forbid. Because if Biden expects at the end of this war and we've conquered Hamas, that we're going to turn it over again to the Palestinian Authority. I mean, we've seen that horror movie once before. They had it in 2005, and they were not able to keep it. So who's to say it's not going to happen again? And Hamas could be defeated in Gaza, but bear in mind, 
They are not limited to Gaza. They are already in Yerushalayim. They commit terrorist acts in Yerushalayim. They've taken over the educational system in uh, in, um, in East uh, Jerusalem. They run cultural clubs and sports clubs and economic assistance. They're very, very grounded in Yerushalayim. This week there was a report that they're reestablishing a presence in Lebanon with the tacit understanding of Hezbollah, because they realize their days in Gaza are numbered. So yeah, we could defeat them in Gaza. We could easily lose the diplomacy afterwards if we're not stalwart and resolute. But Hamas defeated in Gaza does not mean the end of Hamas. Hamas is an idea will continue, and that will have to we will have to continue to confront it in every possible form. And finally, and I'm sure you uh, assume that I cannot end this conversation without bringing it up, um, you have tremendous legal experience in addition to your rabbinic qualifications. Uh, it did look like the um, the um, university presidents uh, who were on display in Washington this week, it did look like they were sort of lawyered up, uh, or, or I put it differently, that they had spent some time, let's put it that way, with their legal teams before they answered questions um, from uh, uh, representatives of the United States government. In addition, by the way, if, if it, and if it wasn't that, if it, and if it wasn't only that, that they you know spent a lot of time with their legal teams being prepared, um, one has to also keep in mind that that these people have been on these types of campuses for decades, surrounded by this type of rhetoric, that you know anti-Israel rhetoric that we think you know just started a couple of months ago. It's rhetoric that began many decades ago on college campuses. I need your opinion, your point of view as you watch the congressional hearings this week. What is sobering is that uh, these presidents, not just that they, they lawyered up, they lie. The notion that they cannot uh, prevent people from, under the bullying and harassment statute or regulation of the university, from calling for the genocide of a people unless it eventuates in conduct, is absurd. I mean, that's stupid. Because then what you're saying is, well, if I actually kill, murder people, that's not as bad, because then I really, I've violated the bullying clause. It makes no sense. But add to that, I remember, and I mentioned it to a few people this week, 30 years ago, there was a student at U of Penn, a Jewish student, who called a, a, a bunch of rowdy black girls water buffaloes. Because they were disturbing his studying, they were, you know, partying outside his dorm room, and he was brought up on charges by Penn. But what he did is protected speech according to the Constitution. So when they say they can, they could prosecute this kid thirty years ago, and now, if anything, the bullying and harassment statutes are, are more refined, and the speech codes are even more exquisitely uh, sensitive, and they cannot prosecute, suspend students who are calling for the extermination of Jewish people, it's not just preposterous, it's an open lie. And why is it, what's wrong with the lie? We have to acknowledge that these presidents and those who follow their mentality have raised a generation of moral monsters. And that's what their student bodies are on the universities. They're moral monsters who, you know, will freak out if you use the wrong pronoun, but see nothing wrong with calling for the extermination of Jewish people. 
That's what's happened. That's what's gone wrong. So it's not just the presidents have to go. The entire faculty should be changed. And Jews really have to think once, twice, ten times about putting their children in this uh, poison Ivy League environment. And and supporting that, meaning financially supporting that poison Ivy League environment. (laughs) That's certainly correct. Amazing. Um, yeah, some of us looked at it as silliness, but you're right. It was it was blatant lying, and and frankly, um, it, it was shameful. The whole thing was shameful that someone with that level of academia, so to speak, you know, the, the wisest among us can make statements like that publicly in front of Congress is not just silly. It's absolutely outrageous. Right, but they were forced to lie because they 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 realistically fear that these moral monsters that they think they're educating will engage in violence. They'll take over the administration offices. Right. They'll burn things on campus because that is who they have raised now. That's the generation that they've raised that they think they are entitled to attack certain groups and certain individuals because they deem themselves to be morally superior because of all the nonsense they have been taught for 20 years. They're, they're worried that they'll make the 1970s campuses look like a joke compared to the violence. That that is, can- that's correct. Yeah. So the presidents are in a difficult situation if you have no moral compass. If you have a moral compass, then it's very easy. You need not go to Congress to say that people calling for genocide are wrong. All right. You don't you don't need lawyers. You don't need advisors. You don't need distinguished professors to tell you that's wrong. It's unequivocally wrong. And there's no two ways about it. You don't have to appeal to context unless unless your mind has become so muddled that you're really incapable of teaching anybody anything to prepare them for life as an adult. Unbelievable. Rabbi Przanski, we've been begging everybody here to say Alanisim with greater intent to understand this is a holiday of miracles and we do need the intervention of the one above always, but especially for the open miracle, please God, of having our hostages released as soon as possible. And you know what it's like 6,000 miles away. We can only be effective in this area to a limit. You're surrounded by people, because you're living in Israel, you're surrounded by people who are saying the bracha of Matira Surim with such intensity that are saying Alanisim, as I just described, with incredible uh, incredible concentration starting last night. Um, What's it like? Is it a uh, is, is it difficult being in an environment where where there's so many mixed feelings as Hanukkah has begun in the Holy Land? It is the nature of the Jewish experience. I mean, what is Hanukkah? It's uh, a light in the midst of darkness. We light at night. Everything is dark until we light. So yeah, there's a lot of darkness around, but then we light the lights. And each night, tonight's ready. The second night, I'll be lighting in a few minutes. Each night you light and you add more light. And as the Ran wrote, the more light you have, the more darkness is dispelled. And especially this time, it's so appropriate because there's so many miracles that are happening on the battlefield and on the home front that people, if they open their eyes, can see the Yad Hashem. And we see we're dealt a terrible blow and the reasons for that we all have to contemplate. But now to see the Jewish people coming together and and feeling a closeness to Hashem and seeing his hand and seeing the, the enthusiasm and, and might and 
and will of the of the young soldiers something that's incredible and inspiring and we have to build on that for the future as well what a delight to speak with you Chag Chanukah Sameach and Shabbat Shalom Nachum, thank you very much uh, Malcolm Homeline's shoes are too big for me to fill but I thank you for the opportunity yeah, we don't portray it that way. He's not available, and <laughs> and we always want to find time to speak to someone like you. So coincidence only, and thank you so much. Right, Stephen Brzezanski, of course, from Israel, wishing him and all of our brothers and sisters in Israel a Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Urim Sameach, a Hanukkah, a happy Hanukkah from all of us here at JM in the AM.